Consciousness is undeniably a phenomenon of individuality. We only know of this phenomenon in relation to individual human beings. Whereas the universe is a space-time container for many objective things, including whole worlds and species of creatures, consciousness always has a subjective point of view. An entity of consciousness is a single unity. Thus, in a universe with conscious beings, individuals are real. From the objective viewpoint, we can doubt the existence of individual things. Everything is bound up and connected to everything else. At the most fundamental level, it is not obvious where to draw the lines of division. It's a matter of decision on our part to call an object or a system a single thing or many. We speak of the solar system in the singular, yet we are not confused as to what we're describing. Clearly, we have not picked out of the universe of evident phenomena a single individual thing. I see my acoustic guitar hanging on the wall beside me. I call it a thing, but it is better understood as, as an organized material system. Even the wood grain of its body is a composition, which ceases to be singular once we put it under the microscope. Is a tree a thing or a colony of things? Is it a symbiotic, genetically clonal ecosystem? If so, then a forest is a thing. But that can't really be. A forest, like a city, is a kind of place that human minds can conceptualize as a thing. There is no doubt that we are quite capable of thinking of a river, or a mountain, or a country, or a planet as something in its own right, and fair enough as far as the concept is useful to us. But we must recognize that what we label as things are not true individuated manifestations of physical reality. A material which composes an object is itself a collection of matter organized in some manner, whether it be wood or fabric or ice or human flesh. The human organism is a single thing by pragmatic convention. It is a biological system, a system embedded within other systems. But the mind of such a human, this mind, or yours, is a unified singularity. Within the mind, we observe things as things, concepts, qualified in color and shape handy constructs to order the world by. But I stress, the conscious being is really and truly individual. Taking concepts such as objects and collections and systems as real can lead to great misunderstanding. This is the sense in which we speak of a community of people as a thing. One can rhetorically organize the world according to any number of divisions and collections. I have a collection of books in my room, my library. Is it a thing in addition to the volumes which compose it? There are those who drive Volkswagen cars in my city. Are they not the Volkswagen community? Nobody says so, but that is merely by convention. I wish to consider the development of an individual as we think of it. An autonomous and unique human being, a conscious free agent in the world. To be sure, we are highly constrained. Consider, for example, the episode I presented on personality. I pointed out that personality is a matter of neurochemical incentive structures in the brain. Yet we do things which are difficult, which transcend these incentives in service of higher ones all the time. We get out of bed and take care of business against the drives which compel us to lie in and make excuses. Through the process of maturation and discipline, we become more autonomous. We cut the strings of our childhood puppetry and become real boys. I think this discussion necessitates the consideration of moral development. After all, it is by means of conscience that we are able to push back against our impulses and pleasure-seeking instincts to undertake our responsibilities. And I imagine you've noticed that the undertaking of responsibilities, for better or worse, is what we busy ourselves with pretty much all day. In his book, The Moral Judgment of the Child, 
Jean Piaget wrote, quote, We noted in connection with the rule of a game that the child seems to go through a stage when rules constitute an obligatory and untouchable reality. We must now see how far this moral realism goes, and in particular whether adult constraint, which is probably its cause, is sufficient to give rise to the phenomenon of objective responsibility. For all that we have been saying about the difficulties of interpretation in the study of the moral judgments of children need not put a stop to our inquiry in this matter. It is immaterial whether the objective responsibility of which we are about to give examples is connected with the whole of the child's life or only with the most external and verbal aspects of his moral thought. The problem still remains as to where this responsibility comes from and why it develops. The questions put to the children on this point are those whose results we shall study first, but they were actually the last we thought of. We began, by way of introduction, with the problem of judgments relating to telling lies. In making this analysis, of which we shall speak in the following sections, we immediately notice that the younger children often measured the gravity of a lie not in terms of the motives which dictated it, but in terms of the falseness of its statements." Unquote. This work supports the notion that we outsource our conscience to authority as young children until we develop one of our own. We do what we are compelled to do by others, then in time we gain the capacity to compel ourselves. Piaget and his collaborators questioned children between the ages of about 6 and 13 on matters of right and wrong. The kids were interviewed and given two scenarios from which to discriminate the one that was more wrong or more deserving of punishment. They started with a series of questions related to clumsiness. Here's an example directly from the book. Quote, A. A little boy who is called John is in his room. He is called to dinner. He goes into the dining room. But behind the door there was a chair, and on the chair there was a tray of fifteen cups on it. John couldn't have known that there was all this behind the door. He goes in. The door knocks against the tray. Bang go the fifteen cups, and they all get broken. B. Once there was a little boy whose name is Henry. One day when his mother was out, he tries to get some jam out of the cupboard. He climbed up onto a chair and stretched out his arm, but the jam was too high up and he couldn't reach it and have any. But while he was trying to get it, he knocked over a cup. The cup fell down and broke." Unquote. They had a, a few other questions that were essentially of this same form. The idea is that in one case the material damage is greater, but there's no motive. It is purely accidental and unavoidable. In the second case, the damage is smaller, but the child who caused it was acting selfishly or engaging in something which is not allowed. Piaget goes on, quote, We obtain the following result. Up to the age of ten, two types of answer exist side by side. In one type, actions are evaluated in terms of the material result and independently of motives. According to the other type, of answer, motives alone are what counts. It may even happen that one and the same child judges sometimes one way, sometimes the other. Besides, some stories point more definitely to the objective responsibility than others. In detail, therefore, the material cannot be said to embody stages properly so called. Broadly speaking, however, it cannot be denied that the notion of objective responsibility diminishes as the child grows older." Unquote. He reports that after age 10, subjective responsibility, reflecting motives, is central. From that age, children answer the questions the same way you or I would. The next questions were related to lying. Here's an example pair of stories that were presented to the children in the study. Quote, a. A little boy goes for a walk in the street and meets a big dog who frightens him very much. So then he goes home and tells his mother that he has seen a dog that was as big as a cow. B. 
A child comes home from school and tell his tells his mother that the teacher had given him good marks, but it was not true. The teacher had given him no marks at all, either good or bad. Then his mother was very pleased and rewarded him. Unquote. The pairs of stories always had this form. One was a matter of exaggeration to the point of not being believable. The other was a lie implicitly motivated to manipulate the person being lied to. Describing the younger children's answers, Piaget writes, quote, The general principle underlying these answers is clear. The more unlikely the lie, the more its contents mark a departure from reality. The worse it is. The lie about the dog that was as big as a cow is particularly naughty because it never could be. Because there is no such thing. Because no one ever saw dogs as big as cows. Because it's a bigger lie. And above all, the essential point is that it is a lie because you can't believe it. Mother will see straight away that it is false and the lie will be exposed in the presence of all. But there is nothing unusual about having good marks at school. It is quite likely to happen and parents will readily believe it." Unquote. The older children questioned answered the other way. The motive for the lie becomes the important distinction. I was surprised by the answers of the younger children because I took for granted that the motive behind an action is the key to determining guilt. I ran this little experiment at the dinner table one time after having read this book. I presented a version of each of these pairs of stories to my two children. My daughter was nearly 10 years old and my son was 7. I was amazed that the result of my little poll was exactly in line with Piaget. My son, the younger child, thought the lie about the dog being as big as a cow was the worst lie. My daughter's opinion was the other way. I'll be damned. Piaget concludes that there is a switch from objective responsibility to subjective responsibility, which takes place at some point in childhood before the age of 10. For young children, what the adults say goes, and a rule is a rule. This isn't morality, it is duty at best, and not even that, I suspect. Something is wrong for young children in proportion to getting caught and punished. This is why the dog as big as a cow is more wrong than the deceit about the good marks at school. The child is more likely to be caught out by an adult in the first instance because the claim cannot be believed. According to a true moral sense, the latter deceit is worse exactly because it might be believed and rewarded. This makes it a lie of a much more sinister and dangerous kind. I wonder, though, if this development in the child is nothing more than a learned capacity to think abstractly. In any case, this development should not imply that older children act with morality. Along with the capacity to think abstractly and empathize with other points of view comes a proportionate capacity to exploit it for selfish gain. I found an interesting passage from Friedrich Nietzsche in Beyond Good and Evil, in which he wrote, quote, Throughout the longest period of human history, one calls it the prehistoric period, the value or non-value of an action was inferred from its consequences. The action in itself was not taken into consideration any more than its origin, but pretty much as in China at present, where the distinction or disgrace of a child redounds to the parents. The retro-operating power of success or failure was what induced men to think well or ill of an action. Let us call this period the pre-moral period of mankind, the imperative, know thyself, was then still unknown. In the last 10,000 years, on the other hand, on certain large portions of the earth, one has gradually got so far that one no longer lets the consequences of an action, but its origin, decide with regard to its worth. A great achievement as a whole. An important refinement of vision and of criterion, the unconscious effort of the supremacy of aristocratic values and of the belief in origin, the mark of a period which may be designated in the narrower sense as the moral one, the first attempt at self-knowledge is thereby made. Instead of the consequences, the origin, what an inversion of perspective, and assuredly an inversion effected only after long struggle and wavering. 
To be sure, an ominous new superstition, a peculiar narrowness of interpretation, attained supremacy precisely thereby. The origin of an action was interpreted in the most definite sense possible as origin out of intention. People were agreed in the belief that the value of an action lay in the value of its intention. The intention is the sole origin and antecedent history of an action. Under the influence of this prejudice, moral praise and blame have been bestowed, and men have judged and even philosophized almost up to the present day. Is it not possible, however, that the necessity may now have arisen of again making up our minds with regard to the reversing and fundamental shifting of values, owing to a new self-consciousness and acuteness in man? Is it not possible that we may be standing on the threshold of a period which, to begin with, would be distinguished negatively as ultra-moral? Nowadays, when, at least among us immoralists, the suspicion arises that the decisive value of an action lies precisely in that which is not intentional, and that all its intentionalness, all that is seen sensible or sensed in it, belongs to its surface or skin, which, like every skin, betrays something, but conceals still more. In short, we believe that the intention is only a sign or symptom which first requires an explanation, a sign, moreover, which has too many interpretations, and consequently hardly any meaning in itself alone. That morality in this sense, in which it has been understood hitherto as intention morality, has been a prejudice, perhaps a prematureness or preliminariness, probably something of the same rank as astrology and alchemy, but in any case, something which must be surmounted. The surmounting of morality, in a certain sense, even the self-mounting of morality, let that be the name for the long secret labor which has been reserved for the most refined, the most upright, and also the most wicked consciences of today, as the living touchstones of the soul." Unquote. I recognize the unfairness of reading aloud the words of Nietzsche and expecting it to be understood. I myself have to read his work at least a couple of passes through before I can have any claim to comprehending it. But to be fair, this passage was pretty straightforward and literal compared to most others that I might have shared. Let's first recognize that there is something terrifying in the words of Nietzsche, but which also rings true. It's interesting to see that he observes a movement from pre-morality to morality in the history of mankind, which mirrors the work almost a hundred years later of Piaget and other 20th century psychologists on child development. In what he calls the pre-moral era, the consequences of an action are the sole determinants of its value. This is exactly what Piaget revealed in the moral intuitions of younger children. More cups broken equals a greater crime. This is objective responsibility. In the moral era, the one in which we live now, at least in the industrialized world, we recognize that the intentions of an action are critical to its value. For example, our legal systems distinguish between manslaughter and premeditated murder. You might get a longer prison sentence for attempted murder than for actual manslaughter, even though in the first instance there is no corpse to be accounted for. Thus we judge at least in part based upon the intention of the perpetrator. But Nietzsche puts his finger upon something important, as he often does. He associates a higher consciousness, a consciousness of self, with the surmounting of morality, or with ultra-morality. I should point out as well that Freud later identified the id, the ego, and the superego as a model of the human mind. It turns out to reflect the pre-morality, morality, and ultra-morality of his philosophical predecessor. In all likelihood, Freud was partially influenced by Nietzsche. Ultra-morality is only achievable by a person who understands himself sufficient to, sufficiently to be responsible for his deeper hidden motivations. He claims that this new level of morality is limited to the most upright among us, as well as the most wicked. 
Let's consider how this might be the case. Take the trolley problem. A train is barreling down the track toward a group of three unsuspecting people. A bystander has access to a lever which will divert the train down a second track where one person is standing. Should he pull the lever or not? The consequentialist premoral answer is only concerned with the number of victims, and thus prescribes diverting the train to run over only one. The intentionalist moral answer would say not to pull the lever, because that would be an intentional killing of a person. The trolley will soon kill three people, and that is unfortunate, but it does not justify you in killing a different person to save them. How about the ultra-moral position? This superseding viewpoint understands the whole situation. It says to hell with your self-serving morality. It is your responsibility to pull the goddamn lever, even though you are horrified to do so, and you will have to live with what you have done. You have defied your morality for the greater good. This is the level of morality called upon by leaders in war. The bombing of Hiroshima was immoral, but it may well have been ultra-moral in the Nietzschean sense. The implication is that the ends must sometimes justify the means. While this must be the case under certain circumstances, I find the idea frightening. Everyone more or less believes themselves to be acting with good intentions. So given power, they will do what they want to do and rationalize it based upon their own goals. Admittedly, though, this is an extreme case, the case of tremendous power. Most of us are not in a position to find out in what ways we would be corrupted by such power, and that's a good thing. Let's leave that aside and consider our own minds and the values we hold. How do we become the best that we can be, well-informed, understanding our own deep motivations, and taking on the greatest responsibility we can manage? How do we come to see our own weaknesses and strengths? In the beginning, we are responsible to the authority of our parents and teachers and so on. Just like Piaget's children, we started out with a concrete understanding of concrete rules and expectations. We grew up and learn to consider right and wrong in terms of intentions. Now we can negotiate new rules, say when playing a game. Kids do this all the time, and they also referee one another with regard to rules. Was the ball inbounds or out? Was it a ball or a strike? We could start to abstract out the spirit of the law. We could come to grips with what makes something right or wrong beyond the say-so of an authority figure. But clearly this moral sense is not sufficient to be useful and upright across one's lifetime. There's two major problems with good intentions. First, the road to hell is paved with them. Implement a new policy to solve a problem and observe a half a dozen new injustices that come up as a side effect. The second major problem is that good intentions are not necessarily good. We can deceive ourselves as to our deeper motivations and assume our own goodness where it is not at play, or at least is not the dominant force behind our actions. Thus, we can be blind, willfully or otherwise, to our own motivations. Moreover, it looks to me like ideology can function as a substitute for individual responsibility because its follower subjugates himself to its axioms and follows them on faith, like a child following the dictates of his parents. A student doesn't go to seminary school in order to be convinced of a religious framework. Rather, he attends such a program in order to become a purveyor of that religious framework. The function of an American liberal arts education is to become an individual Yet we see today the regrettable transformation of our universities into seminary schools. Leaving the nest of home, our little birds are called upon to fly, but we deliver them instead into a new nest and then wonder why they are not flourishing. The central thesis of this episode is that consciousness proves the existence of the individual. 
In the previous episode on the opposition between critical theory and liberalism, I made an offhand point which had not occurred to me before. I said, quote, The only threat that the investigation of human consciousness could be accused of is an attempt to discover the reality of the subjective individual, which supports a liberal view of ultimate equality and moral value of conscious beings, a focus which undermines the legitimacy of identitarian collectivism in favor of humanitarian empathy and the unifying existential commonality of being, unquote. I hadn't noticed that there are political implications to the understanding of human consciousness. Wouldn't you know it, there was something to learn from critical theory after all. Sadly for the theorist, I didn't learn to apply critical methods in the overthrow of capitalism, but I did learn something. While I'm on the subject, I should make a point here regarding a matter of important distinction, which has occurred to me since I published that episode. I fear that students are not so much being instructed in critical theory as being instructed by critical theory. A lot hinges upon that distinction. Religious instruction provides a very good analogy. When you go to Sunday school, you are taught the biblical stories as revealed truth. The leader of the class is not teaching you how to distinguish between truth and falsehood. The leader is handing over the content as true. A scholar of critical theory would understand that its purpose is to overthrow capitalism and the liberal order. This is accomplished by means of a critical method of social analysis. The students, I worry, are not being taught how to use the method and why, but rather they are subject to the analytical results. The students are the target of the method. Suppose you want to learn the critical method. Select an interest group. It doesn't matter which one. Hell, why not chickens? Okay. Read Huckleberry Finn and determine the conceptual contradictions implicit in the novel. Then, write an essay on how those contradictions are oppressive to chickens. Done. You get an A. Doesn't that just show how this method comes out of legal theory? It's not a means of discovering truth, it's a means of making an argument. That approach applies if you want to be instructed in critical theory. Ultimately, I don't have any problem with that, other than its obvious ridiculousness. This is an exercise in how to apply the method to anything you wish to do damage to. How, then, do we instruct students by critical theory? By simply teaching the class that Huckleberry Finn is oppressive to chickens. If this is a courtroom, the students are not the attorney formulating a case, but the jury being subjected to it. Then we wonder why a rowdy crowd of undergrads are assembled outside the KFC on campus screaming profanities. By the way, this problem in our educational system goes way further abroad than critical theory. Let's be honest, we teach science to kids the same way. We don't teach them how to apply the scientific method to gain an understanding of reality. We teach them our understanding of reality and call that science. Then we pull our hair out in exasperation over everyone's confusion and gullibility. Don't make observations and form hypotheses, you ignorant fools. Don't look at the data. Follow the damn science. Where was I? Oh, yes. Individuality and consciousness as a universal reality. If taking the problem of consciousness seriously entails a reality for the individual, while denying it to the collective, then a politics which acts on behalf of individual dignity and sovereignty follows naturally. Individuality is not a social construct or convention, while nation-states, corporations, political parties, and identity groups are such conventions. A community is no more real than a deity. This is not to say that communities are useless and unimportant. It's just that we need to get our priorities straight as we define the membership of the communities we value. Perhaps we could notice how much better it is to exist as a free individual within a wide human community than to pick out and magnify the superficial differences which distinguish us. Collectivism 
is religious worship. As long as we are in a religious mood, we might best cultivate a humanitarian monotheism. Identity politics is a religious war waged among the worshippers of a pantheon of false gods.